Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Hey, guys. <laughs> wow. Oh, that, you, that is so kind. Thank you, guys. It's, uh, it's awesome to be back. For those of you who are, are, who are newer to venture and you're like, why is everyone clapping? Uh, I, I used to have the honor of being the teaching pastor here. It was a beautiful season. Yeah, and it was a, um, really a season where this church, you all ministered to me. And if you're newer around here, you should know if you're hurting, if you're seeking God, you have found an incredible group of people who can help you heal and experience God. That's what happened for me and my family. We were here for about four years. We got to drop in last summer and I'm thrilled to be back with you. It's so fun to be back and to uh, see familiar faces and reconnect deep friendships. It's also really a joy to see God at work here at Venture. I hope you guys know that with your lead pastor, Tim Lundy, God has really sent you an incredible leader and teacher. I think you guys know that. Can we celebrate what God's doing through Tim and through all of you as a body? Uh, this week and next week, this is a little two-part series, and I wanna let you know today, because we're, we're actually talking about when you're suffering. We're talking about the pain uh, the hurt in your life. And I wanna let you know right now, maybe uh, God will bring someone to your mind during this message. Maybe they're not even yet a believer or there's someone who's wandered away. Next week's message will be part two of this and it'd be a great message to invite them to come and experience the healing of God. Today I wanna talk with you about those times when what you hope for and what happens are two totally different things. And I'll start on a lighter note. Let's do a little raise of hand survey. Uh, be honest here. Uh, raise your hand if when you were a kid, you ever did anything stupid. Let's, let's see who's, who's honest in the room. Okay, the rest of you, I'm assuming either your arm doesn't work or you weren't listening or something. All, all of us did something stupid at one point as a kid. And I'll start with a story of that. It involves what's called a super soaker. A super soaker is not a normal squirt gun. It's a squirt gun that can blast a large quantity of water. And uh, when I was a teenager, I think I was about 15 when this story happened, I was the lankiest, nerdiest, whitest, Midwestern, like teenage boy that you can imagine and lived in a, a sort of rural area. We didn't have a lot to entertain us out where we lived. And so one day, uh, my buddies and I, we decided to all load up our super soakers and drive around town. This sounds so inappropriate now, but you know, it was the middle of nowhere. We were doing super soaker drive-bys. <laughs> and so uh, literally seven of us loaded up in this old Oldsmobile sedan that my buddy Donnie Varney had. It was the kind of old car where the front row is a bench seat. So there was uh, three guys in the front row, including the driver. And then four of us crammed in in the back. Most of us had these smaller super soakers, but my friend in high school, Nate Forbes, he had this particular model. Now this model includes, as you can see, a backpack that you fill with water and you pump it multiple times and then it just lets loose kind of like a, a fire department quantity of water. So we're driving around town just being stupid teenagers and uh, we're stopped at, at a light, and up ahead of us on the right is a lowered Chevy Monte Carlo with big rims and bass thumping and the windows down. And Nate, Nate is in the shotgun seat, right? That's the front passenger seat, and he's got his big old super soaker hanging out the window, and he sees this Monte Carlo up about three cars ahead of us on the right, and we just hear this kind of primordial grunting noise that Nate starts to make. He's like, ha, ha, ha. And, and then we watch in almost slow motion, this blast of water. It goes right in the driver's window, which is down. It goes in all over the dashboard. Next thing we see is smoke from the tires and the little reverse lights. The guy in the Monte Carlo throws it in reverse. He, he peels out and comes right back next to us. And it's at this moment that we realize that we're pinned in in traffic. You know, Nate wasn't really planning ahead. 
And the guy, by the way, you guys are allowed to laugh at this because Nate's gonna survive what I'm about to describe. He's alive today, he's fine, so you can laugh at this, he deserved it. So this guy jumps out of the Monte Carlo and he starts to make his way to the passenger window. We're pinned in in traffic, we can't go forward or backwards. And it's at this moment that Nate Forbes realizes that this power window on Donnie's Oldsmobile doesn't really work. So Nate's like two hands on the switch and the window's like, <laughs> no joke. This big dude gets out of the Monte Carlo. He just leans on the roof of the Oldsmobile and he just starts sucker punching Nate in the face. Now I, he lived, okay? You can laugh at him, all right? Donnie, who's in the driver's seat is just like this. And, and finally the traffic clears out and Donnie's just sitting there and the four of us in the back are like, Donnie, go, go, go. And Donnie floors it and we got out of there and we all lived to fight another day. Sometimes what you hope for and what happens are two totally different things. Now, uh, here's the ultimate poetic justice of that true story. And, and maybe it's not appropriate for church, but I just think it's too funny not to mention. Obviously we were stupid kids, but what happened when, when Nate was getting punched, he survived physically, he was fine, but uh, he did wet his pants a little, which I think is kind of the ultimate poetic justice, right? You're gonna go around spraying people with water and you get beat up a little bit and, and wet yourself. So. <laughs> sometimes what you hope for and what happened are, are two different things. And sometimes we can laugh about it. Other times what we hope for and what happens are, are painfully different. Uh, that was the case for me in 2009. My wife, Mel and I, we'd been married for about a year and um, we weren't necessarily planning to have kids yet, but uh, we found ourselves pregnant. And I remember just this roller coaster of emotions that at first I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not ready to be a dad. I'm, oh, I don't know about this. But then as the weeks moved on, uh, that fear turned into just this incredible joy, you know, that, that we had created a life together. And I started to get so excited about being a dad. And um, I'll never forget the day in 2009, I was still working as a newspaper reporter, a journalist, and I was at my newspaper office working on a story when I got a call from Mel. She said that she was having some really severe pain and um, she didn't know what was going on, but she was having major cramps and um, we knew it probably wasn't a good sign. So I, I hopped in my car, I hurried home, got home to find my, my wife just balled up on the couch in just in agony. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where someone you love is hurting physically or emotionally or both and you're there, but there's nothing you can do to take their pain away. I remember all, just all the thoughts racing through my mind, all the emotions, and, and then this was the most bizarre thing. We lived in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time. It's a desert, it never rains, and it started to thunderstorm. And in this thunderstorm, the power goes out. So I'm going around the house lighting these little candles. My wife's laying on the couch just suffering in agony. We, we're just kids, we have no idea what to do. And I just remember in that moment, just feeling like the whole universe was against us. I remember after that little shell of a life passed out of Mel's body, it was a miscarriage. Uh, her mom came to pick her up and they went to the hospital together. I remember standing in the little bathroom of our house there in Scottsdale and uh, holding this little shell that was gonna be our firstborn. And it was small, but it was developed enough that I could see the head, I could see where the eyes were forming. And I'm not a big crier, like I can watch a Hallmark movie without crying. <laughs> but, but once Mel and her mom left and I was in the bathroom just holding this thing and just this wave of emotion hit me and I just started to have these heaving sobs that I had never had before, I've actually never cried that hard since it just what we hoped for and what happened were so different and it was so devastating. And I'm guessing that you can relate to that feeling. 
I'm guessing that at some point in your life, and maybe it's something you're going through right now, that what you hoped for in your career, or what you hoped for in your family, what you hoped for in your finances, or in your health, what you hoped for in a relationship, and what has happened, what you find yourself in, they're just, they're so different that it's just devastating. Now God speaks to this, and he actually answers this question, what can you do when your suffering seems hopeless? What can you do when, you know, life has just gone so different than you wanted or expected that you don't even know, like, where do I even go from here? What can you do? What can you do when your suffering seems endless? One more cancer treatment or one more uh, consequence from the divorce that you didn't want. One, one more unexpected change at work. What can you do? If God speaks directly to this, would you want to know what his word, the Bible, says about this? Uh, that's what Venture does every weekend here. It opens up the word of God because God does speak about real things like this. And I want you to know today's hope, today's answer to this question is really just one of thousands of hopes that the word of God gives you. And so let's look at this one, and it's, it's a little bit of a deeper one. We're going to read it, and then I'm going to put a few layers of paint, if you will, on it. And I would invite you right now to just ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher today. Let God know you want to learn from him wherever you are in your faith journey, because what we're going to learn is, uh, is a little bit spiritually nuanced. And yet of all these hopes in Scripture, there are thousands of them, this is one that for me has carried me through some of the deepest suffering and pain. It's found in Romans chapter 8. Here's what God says in answer to this question. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, what does God mean here when he says, if we're children? Uh, he's not being demeaning. He's not making little of us. This is actually a term of great affection. And what this is uh, clarifying is that the following promises are for everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus. And so if you're here and you haven't yet done that, of course, this is a place that you're welcome every weekend to come and see and learn what a relationship with God is about. When you choose to place your faith in Jesus, and by the way, that's as simple as repenting and believing. Repenting just means, God, I need your help. I've sinned, I'm sick, I'm broken, I have these problems, I need your help. Believing is Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died for me and rose again, will you be my savior? When you repent and believe, you get adopted into the family of God, and the creator of the universe now refers to you and views you as his son or daughter, his beloved. And as you can see in this text, you get all the rights of a child in a healthy family relationship. You get an inheritance. You get an identity. You get a family. And so this phrase, children, is actually a really important term. It lets us know these are specific promises for a specific group of people. This passage continues, and this is really the heart of it, verse 18, Paul the apostle, who's familiar with suffering, he's writing and he says this, I consider that our present sufferings, plural, so you take all the suffering in my life, all the suffering in your life, all the suffering in the row that you're sitting in, or if you're watching online, everyone watching online, we add all that suffering together. In fact, not only those of us believers alive today, but Christians throughout history. Christians who were uh, fed to lions in Colosseums. Christians in the Soviet Union who were marched out into the snow to freeze to death. You take all the suffering of all the believers of all of time and you add all of it up and you put that on one side of the scale. That's an immense amount of suffering. And what God tells us today, this is hard to believe, but God can help us believe it. All of that suffering is not worth comparing with the glory, our future state that will be revealed when we're with God in heaven after Christ returns for us. 
And so it'd be easy to think, okay, what I'm going through, it's worth it because what I'm going to will even out and it'll be worth it. And isn't that often how it is in life? We have to sacrifice for things we want. Every good thing requires sacrifice. You want the promotion, so you're waking up an hour earlier. You want the retirement, so you're denying yourself today and saving for tomorrow. You want the relationship, so you learn to be selfless rather than selfish. Every good thing requires sacrifice. And so on the one hand, it might be natural for us to say, okay, all the sufferings of this life, when we get to eternity, we'll look back and we'll say it, it evened out and it was worth it. But what God is actually teaching us here is that our future state, all of us who've believed in Christ, our future state is so wonderful that we'll get there and we'll say, wow, it didn't even compare. All the pain of my entire lifetime, as real as it was, as valid as it was, God never uh, demeans it or makes light of it. it. It was so small compared to the wonder. I think it's uh, a challenge for us because we're in these physical bodies. We sometimes think of ourselves as primarily physical and maybe we have a little bit of a spiritual dimension. I, I love the old quote that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience rather than physical beings having a spiritual experience. And this word glory, it sounds like such a church word, doesn't it? I think in our modern terms, uh, some words that overlap with the meaning of this are ecstasy, delight, pleasure, Wonder, glory's not a boring thing. It's not like we're gonna be precious moments figurines sitting on the fireplace mantle of God's house in heaven and you know, we're just these like floating orbs and it's boring. Glory is exciting, glory is overwhelming. I mean, you think of any pleasure you've experienced in life, the most delightful pleasures, those dopamine releases, the, the amazing things. God says in the book of James that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Any good thing you've experienced ultimately traces back to God. And all the pain we experience ultimately traces back to uh, the counter God, Satan, our enemy. And so glory is not boring. Uh, in heaven, it's described in the book of Revelation, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth. That there, we will walk and we will talk and we will eat food. I believe we'll see colors we haven't seen. We'll hear things we never even imagined. There will just be this wonder. And we all know that we'll witness the glory of God. But this passage also says this glory will be revealed in us. It's a little kind of transcendent sounding. But it's this idea like as we, there's no more barrier of sin or separation between us and God. And as we experience the wonder and the delight and the awe and the majesty of the creator who's the author of every good and perfect gift, uh, it's just gonna be such an overwhelming wonder that we can't even comprehend it right now. And it's like trying to you know, explain to a toddler you know, what marriage is like, or it's just beyond our present tense, we can't fully understand it. And, and this, this paradigm, I know it might not seem like when you're in a hospital bed that, that this can minister to you, but I've been in a hospital bed when this has ministered to me. It lets us know that what we're going to is so much bigger than what we're going through. And I know that when we're suffering, what we're going through, it can feel like it's everything. And, and sometimes it is. And God relates to that, he comforts us in that, but he gives us this, this deep hope that what you're going to is way bigger. You know, here's something I've learned as a follower of Jesus. I mentioned earlier, there are thousands of hopes for you in the Bible. And some of these hopes, uh, for example, maybe you're going through sickness and you hope to get better. You hope that God cures the cancer and you pray and you do the treatments and then, and then you get a report that you're cancer free and, and God gave you that answer to prayer, that hope. Those are good hopes. But this is kind of the deeper level hope, if you will. When you pray and you ask and you don't get the immediate healing or you don't get the immediate promotion or uh, the person who's estranged from you won't answer your phone call and it won't change in those moments you claim this promise, what I'm going to is so much greater 
than what I'm going through. Verse 19 says this, for the creation, planet Earth, waits in eager expectation for what? For the children of God to be revealed. That's the moment when Jesus is gonna return. Jesus came the first time as a baby, as a suffering servant. Um, just so you know, when he returns the second time, he's not gonna be a baby or a suffering servant. He's gonna return as a judge, as king of kings, as lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's the one true God. And when that happens, we're actually told here in Romans 8, 19, that, that planet earth itself, all the things that are unresolved because of the fall and of sin, uh, the, the creation is groaning. Look at verse 22. All of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to now. One of those uh, interesting things about the Bible and science, this was written about 2000 years ago. No one really knew about tectonic plates when this passage was written about the earth groaning. Did you know that seismologists, you know, essentially have uh, very technical stethoscopes <laughs> that they can put on planet earth and measure the tectonic plates to try to, you know, have a heads up of when an earthquake coming. And guess what the tectonic plates do? They groan. There's, there's a, a groaning, this, this metaphor in this passage, there's a literal part of it that creation is broken by sin and is waiting for Jesus to return and make everything right. But the, the real point of this passage here is verse 23, we believers also groan. When you place your faith in Jesus, uh, you get an abundant life and you're made right with God and your sins are forgiven and there's joy. You get the Holy Spirit so you have things like patience and kindness and self-control that you didn't have previously. And yet, you look at the state of the world. You look at unjust war and at racism, at death and disease, malaria, starvation, drought, abuse. And there's something in you that groans and says, Ah, I, I know I've been made right with God, but I'm still living in a, a world that's broken. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. So if you're a newer believer, learning that uh, one part of the Trinity, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one part of the Trinity, one God, lives within you now, the Holy Spirit. And, and it is a foretaste of this wonder, this spiritual ecstasy that we'll experience for eternity. But right now in this broken world, we long for our bodies, the physical part of us, to be released from sin. Won't it be great when you wake up in the presence of God and you're never tempted again? Like every desire you have is a good desire. I can't wait for that. That's gonna be awesome and for your body to be released from suffering. And so I, I hope you find some hope in this that as a follower of Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen for you. You have these amazing promises of God. You have an inheritance. You have an eternal security with Jesus. And yet it's normal in this life, in this world, to struggle with sin. And it's normal in this life to have suffering. When you have suffering, I don't think most times it's that God's judging you or against you. Most times as a follower of Jesus, it's that we're in a broken world. Paul the apostle who wrote this had a physical condition that he called his thorn in the flesh. And it caused him great pain and great suffering. And that's a whole other passage that I could go way into. But the point is this, you will have some suffering in this life. And when you do, use it as a springboard to lift your eyes up above your circumstances, up above your physical reality, and allow the suffering to become a vehicle for growing your faith in a, in a life that's bigger than our 90 or so years here, in a kingdom that's better than any nation on earth will ever be. Verse 23, we also wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised 
us. So uh, in the new heaven and in the new earth, you will have a body and it will be perfectly fit. It will never have zits or acne. You'll never get overweight. You'll never get sick. There will be no hospitals. Now verse 24 says, in this hope, we were saved. And I think this is so important because what is this hope? It's really a hope that is, is somewhat tasted in the present, but is primarily in the future. And a lot of times when we go through suffering, we just obsess on our present. And again, God loves you in your present suffering. He has empathy, sympathy, more than that. He has cried with you, we'll see some of that. But your deepest hope, the hope of a most mature Christian, isn't just my cancer will go away or my marriage will get better or I'll get the promotion after all. You can pray for those, those are good things. God often gives those things. But the deeper hope is even if I don't get better, e even if that uh, person hates me, even, even if my earthly circumstance doesn't get better, I have an eternal hope, I have a future hope. Verse 24, second part, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Uh, it's almost like God is saying, uh, I know that the natural, the natural response to that is to say, well, but I can't see it. <laughs> he says, I, I know you can't see it. This is what walking by faith is. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So, there's this assumption that our, our hope is in the future and that we're in the process. There's a pastor, I think it was Greg Laurie, um, who once said, if you're a believer in Jesus, this world is the closest to hell. This is the closest to suffering that you'll ever get. In other words, if you think of the next 10,000 years of your life, and if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have another 10,000 years of life. The next 15,000 years of your life, this right now, this is the lowest in your story ever. It, it only goes up from here. So what can you do when your suffering seems hopeless? Remind yourself that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then someday your present suffering today, it'll be a distant memory. It'll be like a little speck in the rearview mirror. And there's sometimes when we go through things that are so difficult, we just have to cling to that. God's gonna get me through this. And what I'm going to is bigger than what I'm going through. I wanna give you three kind of anchors to secure a suffering soul, three deeper truths. It's just this same passage. We're gonna go back over it and put some more layers of paint on it. And here's the first one you will be rescued out of your suffering. So when you're going through it, you can just claim this, uh, through Jesus, I will be rescued out of what I'm, going what I'm going through. God will get me through this. Whatever your present pain is, it will be healed through Christ. Back to verse 17, it said, if we're children, we are heirs. Of course, the word heir has to do with an inheritance. I don't know about you, I don't have much of an earthly inheritance from my biological family. But what God is saying is the moment you placed your faith in Jesus, you got an inheritance and it's actually the same as Christ's. You're a co-heir with Christ. So what is Christ's inheritance? Well, uh, if you've been hoping to buy a house and save up, guess what? He owns all the real estate in the world. Uh, the inheritance with Christ is, is, is overwhelming. When we get there and experience it, again, we'll look back and say, oh, that suffering was totally worth it to get to this. I had a friend in college who was an inheritor and the way his parents had set it up, uh, he had an inheritance of about $20 million. Not, not too bad, right? <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think I have any inheritance. I don't know, I haven't asked my parents, but I don't assume I do. This guy had an inheritance of $20 million, but the way his parents set it up was really interesting. He wouldn't get any of it until his 25th birthday. And even then it was just like the first uh, chunk of it. And to get it at age 25, he had to go to college and graduate and get a job like everyone else. It's kind of smart, I think, the way his parents set it up. So I remember in college, I mean, he had to eat ramen noodles like the rest of us. 
This was before inflation. We could get a, a large Papa John's pizza. It was a special for college students. For $6, you could get a large Papa John's pizza. And so he ate, he ate you know, poor college kid food like the rest of us. He went through dating and breakups like the rest of us. And yet, I remember always thinking, this guy knows in the back of his mind, if he goes out and gets a job and falls flat on his face, like he probably just has to make it till he turns 25. And then he's set for life. What that illustrates is this principle called already, not yet. Uh, when that friend of mine was born, he was already an inheritor, but he was not yet in possession of that $20 million until he turned 25. So from his birth to age 25, he lived in an already, not yet tension. Does this make sense? Now, already not yet is actually, if you read all of Genesis to Revelation, there are many promises of God for us that are already not yet. You've placed your faith in Jesus, your sins are already forgiven. You're already adopted into the family of God, but you're not yet free of a broken body that still tempts you. You're not yet in heaven where everything will be made right. You're already an heir, but you've not yet taken possession of all of your inheritance. Does this make sense? This is such an important tension to understand because you'll see a lot of uh, churches that mean well, pastors that mean well, Christians who mean well, they'll just focus on one half or the other. You know, some will say, hey, because Jesus died on the cross, all our sickness will be healed. So if you have enough faith, you'll always be healed. Well, they're misunderstanding this. If that was true, we would have 2000 year old Christians with us from Ephesus and Rome, wouldn't we? Like they just never died because they had enough faith. Like enough faith, you will still, your body will still break down and die even if you have perfect faith. It happened to Paul the apostle and Peter. Those people don't understand. Yes, all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ, but they're not, we're not yet in the kingdom, the full kingdom of heaven. Already, not yet. Um, there's lots of pictures of this. I'll try to keep cruising here. But you know, if you think of scripture, one picture of this would be the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt and God sent a servant named Moses and God told them, I have a promised land for you. It's already yours. But it took them 40 years, didn't it? To get from slavery to the promised land. And so even though the promised land was already theirs, they were not yet in possession of it. And so already you do have a body that will never have cancer. Already um, you do have an eternity where there's no more suffering or sin, but you're, you're not yet there. And every day we wake up on planet earth, we're here for a purpose, aren't we? God's still got people for us to love on. He's still got, so even if we suffer in this world, we're here for a purpose, not just to get through the suffering. And Jesus models that for us. Look at the second half of this same verse 17. We are co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings. So there is this assumption. We are, lest we forget, we're followers of a guy who was killed by a mob. Like that's who we're following. We're modeling our life after him. So there's gonna be some times where we're misunderstood. There's gonna be some times where we're persecuted. There's gonna be some times where um, we pour out love and we get hatred in return. And when that happens, we're not failing. We're, we're following Jesus. And in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Place your bigger hope outside of this world. Did you know that Jesus has tasted your suffering? Whether your suffering is physical in your body, uh, emotional estrangement, disappointment, Jesus has tasted your suffering. He experienced in his time on earth uh, every dimension of suffering that we experience. And as we follow him, we will ultimately follow him through suffering to that path of glory. But kind of like my friend who had the $20 million inheritance, there'll be times that we suffer and we just have to look to the future. Let me give you one more visual story of this already not yet tension because this is a deeper truth. 
Uh, here's another really visual story of it. It's a guy named Louis Zamperini. Some of you will be familiar with some parts of Louis's story here. Louis was a, a track star at the University of Southern California in the 1930s, ran in the 1936 Olympics, and then World War II broke out. And uh, Louis's story is documented in the book called Unbroken by Laura Hildenbrand. Uh, by the way, I know every book is better than the movie, but if you've only seen the movie, let me just say on this one, the movie doesn't even compare to the book. It just doesn't do it any justice. You gotta, you gotta read the book or listen to it on audio at least. It's an incredible story of suffering because uh, Louis ultimately, he was in a B-24 airplane, got shot down over the Pacific and was interned in a Japanese prison camp there in the Pacific during World War II. And if you know much about World War II, as the war dragged on, uh, Japan was, was um, so refusing to surrender. They were running out of food for their own people. Their own people were starving. And so the prisoners in their camps, I mean, they were starving even worse. These camp conditions were horrific, these prison camps. Most of them were in tropical climates. And so you had mosquitoes and you had disease. You had a bunch of humidity and moisture, uh, you know, ter terrible cleanliness and just total malnutrition. Now, in fact, if your stomach is weak, you, you probably don't want to look at this next picture. We'll just put it up for a moment. But these are actual um, allied prisoners of war from a Japanese prison camp at the end of World War II. Now, the reason I say all this is there was this kind of unbelievable moment in Louis's story when he was in a prison camp and he had given up all hope. Uh, he, he had injured his leg and he just lost all hope. And for about 10 days, there's this unbelievable moment of true history where Japan finally surrendered. I mean, sadly, it required the dropping of the atomic bomb, but Japan surrenders. And for about 10 days, all these prison camps around the Pacific, the Japanese guards, they heard on the radio, we've surrendered. But if you imagine, imagine that you're a Japanese guard, what do you do? Do you like give your gun to the prisoners? What do you do? So for about 10 days, the Japanese guards, they just kept pretending nothing had changed. And the inmates, Louis and all these other guys, they didn't know that they had actually won. They were victors, but they were still in enemy territory. Does this make sense? This is actually a really good picture of our suffering because the moment that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, he is the victor. And all of us who've placed our faith in him, we are the victors. And every demon knows and Satan himself knows that Jesus wins in the end. And yet the world we're in is this kind of shambles of a prison camp where the New Testament says that Satan is still the prince of this world until Christ returns. I warned you guys we were going a little deep today, okay? So this is the already not yet tension. I'm already the victor, but I haven't yet fully seen the victory. I'm already the victor, but I'm still living in a prison camp world where Satan is making big advances and where my body suffers. Hebrews 2 says that when Jesus died on the cross, verse 15, by his death, the reason he died on the cross was to set free all of us who have lived as slaves to the fear of dying. Satan's primary weapons, deception. He deceives us into sin, which enslaves us. And he holds us captive through the fear of death. In my time as a, a journalist and a reporter, um, and now even as a pastor, I mean, I've, I've met a number of billionaires with a B. Guess what? They're just as afraid of death as you are. All humans live as slaves to the fear of death, but through Jesus, we're no longer slaves to the fear of death. We're no longer slaves to sin. And now if we'll walk according to the word of God, we can see through the enemy's lies. So we're victors, but we're still here in enemy territory. Hebrews 2 verse 8 says this, obviously in the context of saying Jesus is God, he died on the cross, he's going to return as King of kings and Lord of lords, but look at verse 8, yet at present, we do not see 
everything subject to Christ. Because Satan's still the prince of this world. I know there's some tension here, okay? But until Christ returns, if you live by sight rather than by faith, you wouldn't conclude that Jesus is the winner. That's why God tells us, walk by faith and not by sight. You're a spiritual being having a physical experience, not a physical being that occasionally has spiritual experiences. We are victors living in enemy territory and in the pain, in the suffering, when we don't get the immediate answer to prayer, when we don't get the immediate relief, we have to lift our eyes up higher and, and fix our hopes on this higher promise. And that's a, another way to put this, this second anchor for your soul is very simply that your suffering will end. Your suffering will end. Claim this in an active way, not just a passive way. When you're going through suffering, you can speak these promises to yourself. Through Jesus, my suffering will end. I fix my hope on future deliverance. Now for Louis Zamperini and those inmates in those Japanese prison camps, they only had one hope. They weren't hoping that the food would get better. They weren't hoping that the guards would get nicer. They had one hope, just one, and it was this, that they would see these B-29 Super Fortress airplanes. They had this hope that as they wandered around the shambles of a prison camp, they learned to lift their eyes up above the horizon and they were constantly scanning the clouds, hoping for the day when the sun would glint off of the polished aluminum hull of these American-made super fortresses and they'd hear the roar of these giant rotary engines, that was their only hope. They knew when we see our planes, we'll know that this territory has been taken over and eventually that day came. After about those 10 days where they were victors but they didn't know it, they finally heard the roar of these engines and they saw these planes flying over. But keep in mind, this was a world war. And so the allies couldn't get to every prison camp right away. So what they would do is they would fly over and they would drop down supplies from above. And there's a metaphor for you here. Because Jesus promises us this, that even though Satan's still the prince of this world, and even though we'll go through suffering in this world, what does he promise? That every day as you seek first the kingdom of God and you say, my father in heaven, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. Give me today my daily bread. Drop down through the heavens what I need to follow you today. What did Jesus say? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. All right, a, a less mature person spiritually wakes up and the first thing they think about is their stomach, their physical body. Jesus would wake up and the first thing he thought about is, what does the Father have for me today? And as I follow God and what he's got for me to do, he'll give me the food my body needs. But I'm not just here to pacify my body. I'm here to bring about a kingdom. I love this uh, next picture. It's a real picture from World War II of these prisoners as these supplies were dropped from above. So Louis Zamperini and these other guys, I mean, they've seen a lot of their friends die. They're emaciated. You can see how malnourished they are. And then these parachutes start to drop down from the American planes and they open these crates and there's coffee, there's Hershey's chocolate made in Pennsylvania. There's all, all these things that they've just, I mean, they've gone without, they, they were dying and it gives them enough to keep holding on. And in Louis's story, I don't have time to go into all the detail, but he had given up hope and he was really just about to die when these supplies were dropped from above. And you can imagine as an inmate in a prison camp, in a war where there's lots of disinformation that you'd almost be wondering like, did we really win? What if we just won this one island, but the, you know, the, a battle, but the whole war is still raging. And, and I love it that this guy's holding a newspaper because there's something about the printed word. When they could read in print, the New York Times, Japan surrenders. And while their body was ministered to by the coffee and the chocolate and the food, their spirit, their mind knew there is truth. We actually are victors. Did you know that God has dropped down from heaven printed word to carry you through this broken world? It's, we call it the Bible. It's the word of God. 
And if, if you're not regularly reading what God says is true, what God says is right, who you really are, your identity in him, your future in him, um, you'll get discouraged. But we open the word of God just like we're doing right now. If you've been encouraged at all in this time, it's because of the power of the word of God. We're just unpacking these promises. Second Corinthians 1 says this, God has delivered us from such a deadly peril. And I love this verse because in it, you're gonna get past tense, present tense, and future tense. When Jesus died on the cross, he already has delivered us from deadly peril. Future tense, he will deliver us again. The day is coming when you're already not yet is, is just all already, <laughs> if that makes sense. The day is coming when you don't live in this tension anymore. So what do we do right now in the present? On him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Did you know that you can set your hope? I think a lot of us in American culture, we're very passive about our hope. We kinda, I don't know, we see an Instagram reel or we uh, hear an inspiring song or we have an appetite and we kind, of, we kind of set our hope as our appetites and as things happen to us and we're passive. But what mature faith is this, I wake up every day and I set my hope on the coming of the kingdom and the reign of Christ and my freedom from sin. And I, I set it intentionally on that in the present. Hebrews 10, 23 says this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. What's the hope we profess? Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's gonna fix everything that's broken in this world. Yeah, amen. And I love the second half of this verse, he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. He who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. He will carry you through what you're going through. And that's the third of these uh, kind of deeper hopes. Your suffering will be eclipsed by future glory. It's from that verse 18 where it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing. And I'll just close with this story. When I worked as a journalist, I saw all kinds of human suffering. I worked for a while on the border of Arizona and Mexico, and I would see immigrants crossing in uh, dehydrated and nearly dying. I um, reported on all, pretty much any way a person can die. I wrote that story at one point or another, and I've sat with parents who've lost kids in every imaginable way. And yet in my own life, the people in my inner circle, I described earlier seeing my wife suffer, but there was another time that, that I saw her in even more physical pain. She was shrieking in agony. My wife had a uh, condition called a parasite. If you know what a parasite is, it's something that feeds on its human host. Now bear with me, this parasite had been feeding on her for nine months. Yeah, that's right, the parasite was my oldest son, Jack. <laughs> While he was in her womb and he just sucked the life out of her pretty much. And he's an awesome kid, we love him to death. But, you know, Mel and I, um, at the time Mel had decided to do a fully natural birth, no epidural, no pain medication, not even any Tylenol. And, um, and I was there. And let, let me say two things. First of all, just all of us men, we're in agreement about this. One, women, you are the tougher species, okay? <laughs> we're all in agreement. I could never do that. I could never do that. Secondly, I, I'm the youngest of four boys. I still cannot believe my older brothers did not warn me that birth is disgusting. Uh, it's, I mean, it smells, it, it just, I, I literally, I was so unprepared that at first I was like, is this even a human? It does not look like a human being at first. There was a moment where I thought my wife was dying based on how loud she was screaming. And I thought that our, our child wasn't human. It was a lot of emotions. 
Mel didn't love the process either as much as we love the result. And, and I, I remember when we got home with our firstborn, uh, us kind of talking about just how traumatic it was doing birth without any kind of epidural or anything, the agony. And I remember my wife saying, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, let's not. <laughs> let's not do that again. So you can imagine how confused I was a couple years later <laughs> when she said, I think I'm ready for another. And I thought, what, do you not remember? I'm like, why would a smart, educated, thinking woman choose willfully, like I wanna go through that again, why would they? Here's the answer. The lifelong joy of a child it's not just worth the pain of childbirth. It far exceeds, it outweighs, it eclipses. And what God says to you today is that in this life, you're going through the pains of childbirth spiritually, but the eternal glory will so outweigh it that you'll look back and you'll say it was worth it. Jesus says this in John 16, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. These are Jesus' words to you today in your suffering. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And here's what Jesus says, so it is with you. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief. This is as bad as it will get for you, but I will see you again, Jesus says. Keep living by faith and you will rejoice. And the joy that you'll experience is, no one will take it away. It's an eternal joy. Can I pray that for you today? Amen. Father, in this place, we fix our eyes on you the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. And Lord, uh, I know for me, I, I just have to call out to you as a little kid and say, God, help my unbelief, strengthen my faith. You tell me that these are the hopes to anchor my soul, Lord. They're so counterintuitive to my flesh and my mind and the message of this world. So Lord, for every one of us online and in this room, would you strengthen our faith as we fix our eyes on Jesus? Teach us to follow you through the already not yet tension of this broken world. Teach us every day to feast on the daily bread that you drop from above. Lord, where we've been hoping for temporary relief, we pray for that and we want that. But today we're, we're leveling up, we're maturing, we're growing and we're saying, God, my ultimate hope is in you. My ultimate hope is in kingdom come my ultimate hope is in heaven and so Lord Jesus come quickly return deliver us but until then Lord you've got work for us to do so may we Jesus follow you through suffering on the path that leads to glory we pray in Jesus name amen we hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith to keep up with the latest messages and what's happening make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc